If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 6 as we continue to look at the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is our passage this morning. I might be wrong, it might be the shortest scripture passage so far. It's still a whole chapter, but um, some of the ones so far have been quite lengthy. But without further ado, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost." For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants. And houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let us pray. Oh God, you are good and you are awesome and you are holy. We pray that you would help us to behold all of that this morning. Behold all of your holiness, all of our unholiness, but also behold all of your goodness and grace and mercy to sinners such as us who desperately need you every hour. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What did Isaiah need most before he began his life's work, before he began to pastor a church, even a country, that God compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, a very wicked city? And what do you need most? What do you need to meet your most daunting challenges today? You might think of a thousand things that you think you need, that you do need. Maybe you need one thing more than all the others. Maybe you need to see the Lord high and lifted up. I preached this passage. Maybe a few of you remember. It was a lifetime ago in December 2019. It seems like about 10 years ago. 
is part of an Isaiah for Advent series, but it's not Christmas time this week, I said, so I've, I've been preparing really for two weeks. I retranslated my Hebrew text. I reread the same three commentaries from 2019. I read three new ones. I ultimately decided to keep my outline from 2019 and a good bit of the content because I decided that what we needed in 2019 is what we need in 2021. And Isaiah 6 shows us those kinds of things. Isaiah 6 shows us, amongst other things, why you need a Savior. It shows you the breathtaking, face-melting holiness of God. It shows you what it's like to stand before a holy God on your own without the blood of Christ covering over your sins. Alec Moitier said, It is a deadly thing for a sinner to be found in the presence of the Holy One. That may not be what you woke up wanting to hear. But if you and I are going to understand the good news of Isaiah, Isaiah, which means the Lord saves, then we, we have to understand this story. We have to understand what we are saved from. We need that. If we're going to be servants of Christ, bringing His good news, bearing the rejection He promises, much like Isaiah did, we need to see God's holiness so we can appreciate God's mercy. As someone said, the more we know of God, the more unreservedly we will trust Him. So, so what did Isaiah see? And what should you see this morning? First, he saw the fullness of God's glory. The fullness of God's glory in verses 1 through 4. God's glory, God's holiness are displayed full strength in this vision. It fills up the room, fills up the earth. It fills up verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, the train of His robe. It fills the temple. Verse 3, the angels are saying, amongst other things, the whole earth is full or filled with His glory. In verse 4, the house, it is, the house or temple, it is filled with smoke. God's glory. His holiness, it's on full display in Isaiah 6, overwhelming everything, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, in the train of His robe, filled the temple. Who was Uzziah? He was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. We might often forget that Israel went through a bit of a prolonged civil war. The country split in two effectively. Uzziah was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, for 52 years. His reign brought stability until it brought scandal. You see, he was a good king until he wasn't. Late in life, 2 Chronicles 26 talks about this. Uzziah burned incense in the temple, the same temple where Isaiah now sits. Uzziah's actions were unlawful for a king. It was lawful only for the priest to do that. And in judgment, God struck Uzziah with leprosy for the rest of his life. You could say as his morality suffered, so did his health, so did his kingdom. When Uzziah died, interestingly, so did Jeroboam, known as a very wicked king, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so southern, northern kingdoms, both of them losing their leader in a short time. And so the foreign enemies, the barbarians, if you will, metaphorically speaking, are at the gates of Israel, smelling blood in the water, ready to invade when Uzziah died, it was probably 740 B.C., best we can tell. 
Isaiah's world, Israel's world was shaken up in a big way. And it's about to be shaken even more because what happened, Isaiah saw the Lord. And it was not just, oh, this is wonderful. I want to remember this the rest of my life, warm and fuzzy and things like that. It was memorable, but it was also scary and awesome. The Lord was sitting upon a throne because he was the true king, as verse 5 points out. He was high and lifted up the train of his royal robe, filled up the temple once again. When I when Isaiah entered the temple, to borrow a phrase from someone else, God lifted him out of time and into eternity. He was seeing a vision. And God appeared to him in a form that Isaiah could see and understand. You might say, but just barely. You get the feeling he's struggling for the right words to describe what he saw. The Lord is again, he's wearing this kingly robe, this huge one. It, it reflects the fullness of God's glory. You also see that in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Interestingly, Isaiah might have coined the name seraphim. It means literally the burning ones. Fiery angels who were only seen in this passage. They are Sinless angels, angels are um, sinless except for those who are fallen, those demons who are fallen. They are sinless angels, and yet they who are sinless will not dare to look at God. One person says there are things about God that he keeps to himself. As one of the reflection questions in the bulletin points out, we can know God, we can know him reliably, but we cannot know him in his fullness, not completely. We are finite beings who serve an infinite God. There are things about God that he keeps to himself. It says with two wings they covered their faces. Two wings they cover their feet. Maybe that's because they intend to follow God's path and not their own. With two wings they fly, ready to do whatever he asks him, ready to go at a moment's notice if, if, they would, if he would just say, whom shall I send? Ready to do whatever he asked. And they're constantly, excitedly proclaiming God's glory in verse 3. One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God in Scripture that gets this triple treatment, this, this threefold repetition there. It is meant to magnify His holiness. It's like using bold print, underlining, and highlighter. You know, when you're writing on stone tablets or papyrus or whatever it might be, you can't just change the font and make it bigger. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Lord is in all caps or small caps in your Bibles. It looks a little funny. It reflects the covenant name of Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on how you translate it, how you, how you pronounce the, the J or the Y there. But it was a name that was revealed to Moses back in Exodus 3, a name so holy that the Hebrews used to find creative ways to avoid saying it. This is the God who is who he is, as he said to Moses. He is self-existent. He is dependent upon no one. He is the God who promised his people 
starting with Moses, that he would be all that his people needed him to be. And by the way, that's still true today. He will still be all that his people need him to be for as long as they need him to be that, which is, you know, forever. And he's the Lord of hosts. You might say, what does that mean? He is the host, the hostess. What's going on there? No, the, the host, the, the armies. It's an old way to say this. He is Lord Sabaoth, as a mighty fortress says. He's the commander of the angel armies. Powerful enough to shake the earth. Holy enough to frighten everyone, including the angels. He is holy other. He is separate from us. He is pure and he is good. And somehow he is more holy than the sinless angels. Verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Again, don't think warm fuzzy feeling, if you know what I mean by that term. Think frightening, awful, breathtaking. He shakes the temple just as he once shook Mount Sinai. And he apparently speaks, but Isaiah doesn't reveal what he says. He fills the house with smoke so that Isaiah cannot see him, you, you imagine for a moment, but Isaiah knows he's there. Isaiah saw the fullness of God's glory these first four verses. He saw God's holiness. Holy is the most common Old Testament description of God's name. More than all the runner-ups combined. I thought that was fascinating. What is His holiness? We could spend hours on it. You're, you're welcome in advance for not trying to spend hours on it. But someone says His holiness is simply His godness in all His attributes, works, in ways. And at this point, you might be saying, okay, great, but, but what do I do with that? What are my three simple steps for how I apply this in my life? Well, I'll give you a few. They might not be what you were looking for, but first I would say you simply need to take all this in. You need to behold your God, as we sang just a few moments ago. Before asking what you need, before you try to acquire what it is you think you need, you need to know your God. You need to know whose you are. That's the first thing. And second, as one commentator says of verse 5, Isaiah tells us how the facts of verses 1 through 4 are to be interpreted. He shows us by what happens in the rest of the story. So what should you do after you see the fullness of God's glory well, hopefully you respond like Isaiah. Hopefully you will see, secondly, the foulness of man's sin. The foulness of man's sin in verse 5. How does the holy prophet, how does he respond? Well, verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You may remember in Isaiah chapter 5, the last time we looked at Isaiah was two weeks ago. Isaiah 5, there were six woes. Woe to the people who do this and that. A strong judgment and condemnation of the nation of Israel. Well, in the Bible, things often happen in sevens. Where is woe number seven? 
here. Woe is me, Isaiah says, for I am lost. Other translations say things like, I am destroyed, I am ruined, I am undone. I'm cut off. I'm doomed. Maybe even I am silent. Isaiah, the sum total of it all, he's saying, I'm a dead man. Because he sees his uncleanness. He is unclean. And that word can be used in a a ritual sense. There were ritual cleansings in the Old Testament, but this is not that. Isaiah is saying, I am not morally pure. I am not right. I have seen righteousness and holiness. I have seen it very recently. And I am not that. Whatever God is, whatever words describe it, I don't come close. He was created in God's image, yes, as as we all are. But Isaiah was created. He was a creation. He was not the creator. And he's getting that at this moment. In the presence of the blinding holiness and purity of his creator, Isaiah says, I am unclean. I am ruined. I am filthy. I am foul. You know the one hymn probably, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. The foulness of his sin, he's getting it right now. And again, he specifically says he has unclean lips. Why his lips? Why does he focus on his eyes or 18 other body parts or qualities about himself? Why his lips? He's a prophet, about to be a prophet at the very least. This this may be his commissioning, his calling. It may be just after that as well. It's hard to tell. And this was the moment that changed his life and his ministry forever. He's going to be a prophet, but how can he be a prophet? How can he proclaim God's word with polluted lips? Ralph Davis says, it would be like someone wanting to be an auto mechanic and having both arms amputated. It's not going to work. How can he join the angelic worship with unclean lips? His unclean lips, they're an occupational liability. They're a limitation to his worship. They're a threat to his life. He is unclean. He has unclean lips. And he's just seen the king. The king, notice that, in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the king, the king of kings. The king that moves the hearts of King Uzziah and all the others any way that he wills, as Proverbs 21.1 says. Again, Isaiah is unclean, he is foul, he is ugly, and he realizes it. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, one of our constitutional confessional documents, in chapter 15, section 2, it says that this... This is part of true repentance. In true repentance, sinners turn to God, it says, not just because of God's mercy, not just because of the danger of their sin, but also because of the, quote, filthiness and odiousness of their sins. Because their sins are odious, smelly, foul, awful. You might remember I said two weeks ago from Thomas Watson, until our sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. You might also say, until our sin stinks to high heaven, Christ will never be sweet and pleasant and pleasing. Of course, some of you might say, hey, uh, 
wasn't Isaiah overreacting just a touch? Wasn't, I mean, he was a prophet. Derek Thomas asked these same questions. He says, did not Isaiah have the cleanest lips in Jerusalem? Had he not spoken the word of God in comparison with his fellow citizens, Isaiah was a holy man. But as all Christians will know, he goes on to say, the more we know of God, the more sinful by comparison we feel ourselves to be. At least that's how it should be, even if you're a prophet. In the same way, uh, John Murray, late professor of Westminster Theological Seminary, written some good books. John Murray was once discussing the sinfulness of the human heart, and his biographer tells how Mrs. Freeman, his hostess, said to him, possibly joking, by the way, but Mr. Murray, we know that you are not as bad as that. As one author says, Murray fixed his good eye on her and said sternly, Mrs. Freeman, if you knew what a cesspool of iniquity this vile heart of mine is, you would never say such a thing. Now, John Murray may not have had a good sense of humor. He may have had only one good eye because of injuries suffered during World War I, but he had a great sense of God's holiness. And he had a great sense of his foulness, his filthiness, his unholiness, his need of God's forgiveness and grace. Isaiah, too, he had a sense of his foulness, but that wasn't the end of the story. What else did he see? Thirdly, he sees the forgiveness of God's atonement. The forgiveness of God's atonement in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah the prophet has unclean lips. They are unfit for, for prophetic service. But God does not call the equipped. He equips those whom he calls. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see some painful purification here. This burning angel takes a burning coal from the altar. I've often wondered, why does the burning angel need tongs to take the burning coal from the altar? I don't know. It doesn't matter. The background here is probably the temple sacrifices uh, back then. A coal from the altar of burnt offering, which of course was always burning, according to Leviticus 6, verse 12. It was always burning because Israel was always sinning, always needing some kind of sacrifice to atone for their guilt. If only there could be one ultimate sacrifice of infinite worth to do away with all the other sacrifices. And of course, there would be, but not yet. And so for now, the angel takes the coal from the altar of sacrifice. Maybe it was the real one. Maybe it was a vision of it. We don't know. And he, and he touches the coal to Isaiah's lips. I think for a moment how that must have felt, even if it was a vision, even if he wasn't permanently uh, scarred, defigured, or something like that. Think what that must have been like, even as he saw it coming. He touches the coal to Isaiah's lips. Why his lips? It's the very place of uncleanness that caused Isaiah to say, Woe is me, this existential dread and angst. 
To put it another way, the antidote for Isaiah's danger and defilement comes from the God-provided place of atonement. What do you see here? God is the one who heals him. God is the one who heals the foul and the ugly. God is the one who brings forgiveness. Isaiah is passive, just sitting back and watching. Isaiah loves because God first loved him. It's all about what God does for him. God responds to this cry of misery and woe. God sees, you might say, the humility along with the dread and the brokenness that Isaiah's words can scarcely express. Isaiah has seen the fullness of God's glory. He's seen the foulness of his own sin and now he sees God's forgiveness freely given to this foul, undeserving sinner like Isaiah. And now what you are about to see Because Isaiah knows his foulness, because he knows the deep, deep love of Jesus, he knows the deep, deep forgiveness that comes from him. Now, Isaiah, now, now he's ready to be a prophet. Now he is ready for his life's work. It might have already started. We don't know for sure. But now he's really ready for it. That's the final thing we see. The forecast for God's prophet. Sobering yet sure. Sobering, yet sure. That's the forecast for God's prophet. First, you see this amazing response to God's missionary call. Great missionary passage here, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Hineni shalakine. Best I can do in Hebrew. It's just two words. Here I am. Send me. Quick, compact, quick response. Isaiah responds to this call because of God's forgiveness. If God has forgiven his sin, who is Isaiah to say he's unworthy, that he can't do it? Again, Isaiah 6 may be the moment when Isaiah was called into the prophetic ministry. It may be the chronological beginning of his ministry. Either way, Isaiah definitely placed chapters 1 through 5, regardless of when they happened chronologically. He placed them there as his introduction so that his readers would understand his rebellious audience as if he says in chapters 1 through 5, this is the kind of sinful cesspool in which I, Isaiah, was ministering. But again, after Isaiah 6, he is ready to go. Despite how hard it'll be, he's ready to go as God's messenger. And enthusiasm's a good thing. He's going to need it because the mission is going to be hard. The forecast, the prophecy that he receives, it's going to be hard. You might say, in the first place, it's a sober forecast. There are modest expectations given to him. Verses 9 and 10, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, that word is the word for repent, and be healed. God says that they're not going to listen. Not going to get it. But keep preaching, Isaiah. Why would he say that? First, because God is judging a people who have been rebellious for a long time. I know it was hard to read through them, but see chapters 1 through 5 if you don't understand. 
And second, God is simply preparing Isaiah in a good way, a gracious way, for what to expect. Verse 9, he says, yeah, they'll hear, but they won't really hear or understand. Their their hearts, their eyes, their ears, none of them are really going to work the way they need to. Why didn't he... Why didn't he try to explain things more simply, you might ask? Actually, he did. Uh, One commentator says, if you look at Isaiah 28, verses 9 and 10, you will realize, in his words, Isaiah taught with such simplicity and clarity that the sophisticates of his day, in other words, the critics that were too smart for God's word, they scorned Isaiah as fit only to conduct a kindergarten. Now, of course, kindergarten is not too early understand the gospel. St. Augustine said the Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. Isaiah taught simply. That wasn't the problem. He actually faced what is called the preacher's dilemma. Someone puts it this way, if hearers are resistant to the truth, the only recourse is to tell them the truth yet again, more clearly than before. But to do this is to expose them to the risk of rejecting the truth yet again, and therefore of increased hardness of heart. And yes, God ultimately hardens the hearts of those sinners. We could look at Romans 9.18, 2 Thessalonians 2.11. We could look elsewhere in the Bible. But somebody else reminds us the hearts that God's hardened. Too many S's here. The hearts that God hardens, they are not morally neutral. They're corrupt and sinful. If the sovereignty of God in these matters troubles us, we should also remember that only a sovereign God can redeem us. What's that saying? It's saying this. Forget for a moment how it makes you feel that God said, Isaiah, many of these people will reject your message. They're going to reject me. Forget how that makes you feel for a moment and think about this. What do you plan to do with this message, this call to repentance, this offer of salvation? Are you going to object? Are you going to demand an audience with God and say, you need to be more merciful, you need to be more godlike? Try telling God that. See how it goes. Or will you respond and say... Woe is me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one of those will you choose to do? There's only one God and you're not him. I'm not either. There's only one God and we are not worthy to stand in his holy presence. But by the blood of Christ, the atonement that God offers, that God provides, we can be made worthy. Don't you want the mercy that he offers? Don't you want to tell others about the mercy that he offers? Because destruction will come one day for those who don't repent. Destruction was coming to Israel. We'll talk plenty about the history behind all this in weeks to come. God's people had primarily, mostly not listened to his word. And so for the most part, they would be destroyed or sent into exile. And so... Isaiah asked God a question as this bad news was on the horizon. How how long? How long is it going to be this bad? God's answer in verses 11 through 13. First, Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, 
houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth, a tree, or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. What's the answer? Oh, it's going to be really bad. Cities and houses destroyed, people removed or exiled, and when it looks bad, it'll get worse, like a stump that gets burned and only gets burned again. But he says, a tenth will remain. Literally a tenth, I don't know, because I don't think we have a census from 740 B.C. The point is, the holy seed would remain. The holy seed, the holy offspring, the remnant. The burned out stump of a once glorious tree. God says, I won't completely cut you off. In that stump of a tree that looks so forsaken, oh, it will grow again one day. Just look at Isaiah chapter 11. And the idea of the seed, the remnant, the offspring, that traces all the way back to Genesis 3. And Genesis teaches us that the holy seed or offspring, it will appear mixed to us, to our perception. Not all of Israel are truly Israel. Some will be grafted into Israel who were not born originally into the Israel of God. And of course, that pattern continues today, doesn't it? Some are born into the church. Some are not, but all of them, all of us, regardless of whether you've been to church every day of your life or if you've never darkened the door of a church until today, all of us must be born again. But God gives us gracious, He graciously gives sober expectations about our evangelism here so that we might not be discouraged when people reject the message, so that we might keep asking, seeking, and knocking for God to help us to win souls. It's actually Him who wins them. I think we know that. And also, it's, it's true, this was a timely message for a specific prophet, for a specific rebellious generation who were about to go into exile. All that's true. But years later, Jesus had similar words for His twelve John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And just a few verses later, he says, go and witness, testify about me anyway. Verse 27. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It's sobering. John 15, Isaiah 6, both of them sobering. But there will be, he says, a stump, a remnant, a people who remain faithful to God's world at word as the world around them rejects God's word. Again, the forecast is sobering, but it's also sure. God's sheep will hear his voice. And both of those things are still true today. Later in Isaiah, he says, chapter 55, verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word, it's accomplished his 
purpose in Isaiah. It showed him the fullness of God's glory and holiness, the foulness of Isaiah's soul, the depths of God's forgiveness. All that prepared him for this forecast, the sobering, sure forecast. Winter was coming, but Isaiah was ready, ready for the good news, ready for the harvest whenever God decided to send it. Friends, winter is coming. By God's grace, you'll be ready for it. I said those last two sentences back in December 2019, they were my closing lines. I had no idea what was coming. I was not a prophet, not intentionally. I had no idea what was coming in 2020. Was I ready? Were you ready? Maybe, maybe we should ask different questions. Are you still here? Are you still holding on by God's grace? Better yet, was God good to you? Did He hold you fast even during the winter? And if so, then what good gifts might God have in store for you in the spring and in the summer? What do I need? What do we need in 2021? I think it's the same things we needed in 2019, to see God's glory, to see God's power, to trust God's goodness. Winter may come at any time, especially in Colorado, but by God's grace, you'll be ready for it. Let's pray. God, you're good. What you do is good. Help us to see your goodness in all the circumstances of life, in all the works of providence by which you reign and rule and send forth your goodness. God, help us. Help us to see you. Help us to see you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.